Welcome to the Church 214 podcast. We're glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at church214.org. It's uh, an honor, obviously, and a privilege to be here. Just even during worship, you have this opportunity to think. Um, one of the struggles, I think, in ministry that happens is you don't really get to do tangible work often. You know, like uh, a car breaks and you put it back together and it works. But in ministry, it's lives, and lives are ongoing journeys, and it's easy to get to a, a space of discouragement. But even sitting here during worship, um, just this picture that's very humbling of, of looking up and seeing both uh, Ike and Phil up here and understanding that for years, at the beginning of my ministry back at Northfield as youth pastor, uh, these were two guys who were present. Um, Phil for a little bit shorter amount of time than Ike was. Um, but it's, it's kind of fitting. Jess and I often talk about, um, as, as a youth pastor, you start um, it, with high school ministry, the first class that you have as freshmen, and they go all the way through. You get to see their whole development. And so that was Isaac's class. And um, it's kind of interesting that we're talking about emotions or feelings over truth because really him and his three closest friends were more like girls than guys. <laughs> because I, it's true. I mean, it would be like, hey, guys, did you know Parker had a, a, a pancake for breakfast? I don't know. It hurt my feelings. We should talk about it. Let's gather the core four. And, and they'd work through stuff. You know, why wasn't he at the, at the December 21st campout? Every year, these crazy kids would go camp on the first day of winter, and they would FaceTime me every year. So Jess and I would be in our warm bed, and we would, hey, <laughs> we're warm and you're not. It's your choice. So uh, it is a privilege and an honor to be here. I wonder, uh, sometimes I'll reference songs in, in a message that uh, may, may or may not be familiar. So in the late 60s, there was a song that came out called Hooked on a Feeling. Anybody know it? It's been redone like a thousand times, right? And what's the, I don't sing, really, I would repel everyone if I did. But the, the idea, there's, there's a phrase in the line that says, I'm hooked on a feeling. I'm high on believing that you're in love with me. And then he goes on to, to say all the reasons why he's hooked on this feeling. And what you see here is everything is purely based on what comes to him as a benefit. And you're like, huh. It's kind of interesting, and it's been redone through the years. It's a catchy tune, but it really speaks to where we're at today. Feelings are truth. What, what role do emotions play? How do we actually understand them well? And I guess I would just say this. If you're really thinking about it, what do we do with emotions? How do we respond to emotions? It, I guess there's two kind of different paths here. Um, you either run from or you're ruled by emotions. It's so easy to be in, in either camp depending on, on that day, depending on what's most challenging, what's presenting itself. Or maybe the Christian response is this. The, the, the Christian looks at emotions and they say, well, a negative emotion means I need to repent. Or a positive emotion must be scrutinized. Like I have to figure out whether that was genuine. Okay, and so you're, you're kind of stuck in both places. It, so what? What do, we, what, do we are, what are we to do with emotions? What should we do? I think one of the things that tends to happen is this. We say, my emotions are right here. This is me, and here's my emotions. 
and I stand right on top of God's word, and I interpret the, the power of his promises, the nature of his goodness toward me through my emotional lens, and then it trickles down to his word. So his word actually, it touches my feet. It might keep them warm, but it never reaches my heart. And so I'm up here saying, no, 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 this, this is a way better grid, right? This is a better umbrella than one that I could produce for myself. And so this is where we're headed today. We're headed to say, okay, if this is what we should do with emotions, uh, then how does that work? How does it work across the board? Maybe this. We have to understand emotions and usually conflict brings out the most emotion. Have you ever noticed that? If everything's fine, I mean, every parent of kids 15 and below in here is going, mm-hmm. Yes, preach it. But the reality is this, is this is true for every one of us. You take what I love, I get angry. You press on what I prize, and I get foolish. This is what happens. And so it's like, what are we, what are we to do with this? It's really about whose glory we seek. You see, I would say it this way, and if you get nothing else, maybe jot this down and keep it for yourself for this week to process how we handle conflict reveals whose glory we seek. Because the way I engage conflict is, is ultimately going to say, I'm for God or I'm for self. It totally changes things. Turn with me to your, uh, in your Bibles to James chapter 3. He says this in James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. I think one of the things that's important as we come to God's word, if we really want to stay underneath it, is we have to understand who it was originally written to, what was the original intent, before we actually start just kind of diving in and, and parsing out truth for ourselves. So understanding the book of James is written to about 12 different tribes or churches in the dispersion. That means um, there was an area west of Asia Minor in, in the first century. <clears throat> experiencing Roman persecution, and so what's happening is their faith is being tested, right? What's James say? Do not be surprised at the fiery trial. Peter says the same thing. This whole idea, count it all joy when things happen that are difficult. Like, really? But he's writing this to people who are experiencing tremendous persecution, tremendous difficulty. He's not writing it to people who have their feet up chilling with Netflix, Right? So it's important for us to keep that in mind. Their life is full of conflict. Their life is utterly in peril. And, and this is how he addresses them. He says this, verse 13, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. I love that word meekness. In the Greek, that word meek actually means strength under control. It's not weak, it's not feeble, it's not a pushover, it's power rightly applied, rightly used. I love it. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. All right. <laughs> Let's just sum that up there. And then he just keeps going and he says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere. Now, apply that just directly to your emotions. 
when I am an emotional person, the wisdom that comes from above is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Wow. I want me some of that. And he says, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. All right, so bitter jealousy has this focus on another person's possessions, their relationships, wanting for myself while at the same time wishing that they would falter. I know no one in here identifies with that. (laughs) I do. I do all the time. And I'm not even, like, joking. Like, when I see a nice house or a car that runs, I'm like, I'd like that for myself. (laughs) When I see another vacation from my friends, and I'm like, dang, it looks nice. Bitter jealousy. Selfish ambition. Selfish ambition, just really plainly stated, it's a desire to put yourself forward. We all know, not that we've been this person, but we all know the person who in conversation always finds a way to circle back to themselves. I mean, is that person like, you're, you're kind of like this in conversation with them, right? Just kind of sliding back, like, how can I be done with this sooner? And, um, but it produces, so here's the deal. What happens, conflict produces um, an environment where wisdom is needed, always, always. And so well, let's just look at this. Let's say, let's define conflict. And then from there, we're going to look at the fact that conflict is normal. We're going to look at the fact that it's revealing. And we're going to look at the fact that it's transforming. And I'm going to slowly unpack those for us, and hopefully that will be helpful. But first and foremost, conflict is this. If we're looking at a definition, the desires of my heart, when they encounter opposition, I have conflict. Um, How many of us know that what I'm acting like on the outside is usually not the problem? Right, like I, I counsel for a living. I probably half my week is spent in my office counseling uh, couples, teens, children from all ages. Um, if somebody comes into t- my office saying that they are funneling money from their company, I am so not concerned with the fact that they're taking money. I'm more concerned with what? Why? What's that? What's driving that? And so that's the, that's the issue with conflict. When the desires of my heart encounter opposition, I have conflict. That's just all there is to it. You see, emotions or feelings, as we're calling them here, emotions are simply this. They, they indicate something on the inside. If you use the metaphor of a car, I could care less if it has Bluetooth, if it has cruise control, if it has heated seats, if it has air conditioning. I want to know, how is it fueled? If you don't figure out the fuel, all the options don't matter. And so if I don't figure out the desire, all the options aren't going to matter when it comes to the expression of my emotions. And so we need to begin to look at conflict because it helps us understand that. So moving into James chapter 4, I'm just going to read the first 10 verses of James chapter 4, and then we're going to dive right in. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. Think of King David there. 
You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. I mean, most of us will yank that verse right out of context and be like, see, look, you need a new car. You don't have because you don't ask. No, he's talking about the fact that you've got warring evil passions, and the reason you're not getting what you're wanting is because you're focused on self. That's a little bit different. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God, not a place I want to be. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? And I love this. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's, that's critical. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. What's he saying? He's saying essentially this. Be wrecked by your sin. Be wrecked by your evil passion in so much as it doesn't carry out the purposes of God. Be destroyed by that. And then he says this, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So first thing is conflict is normal. We need to expect it. We need to expect it very clearly. You'll see this in verse 1 where he just simply says that, hey, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Is it not this? Your passions are at war. So whether you want to admit it or not, you've got an internal battle that's going on within you. And you may be thinking there are times like, why in the world did I get so upset when he came home 15 minutes late? Or what was it about that person who cut me off in traffic that made me keep my mouth shut and be you know, totally humble? <laughs> like, what, what was it about those things that happened? Why is that? What, what's happening? Conflict is normal. I think what happens in most Christian circles in general is you start to get this picture that people are like, conflict? Christians don't have conflict? Whatever. We got conflict all the time. Like, we just do a really good job at lying about it or pretending that it's not happening. And God's like, no, 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 no. Bring it to the light. Bring it to the light. Let's start to expect it. You see, it's a sad fact in James chapter 1 where he begins by saying this. He opens, he opens the whole letter by saying, James, servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. You're like, well, how's that sad, Doug? It's somewhat sad because he's writing to 12 different locations, all of them with the same problems. Now you're like, wow, that's really powerful. And you're thinking, but think about it. Um, when was the last time that you watched a church leader or uh, a ministry person or something fail in ministry. It's like rampant. It's everywhere. He could write the same letter today and send it to 12 different states in the United States, and guess what? It's all about the same thing. Because we're people. And humans are born sinners. We're really good at our craft, okay? Like, if I'm a born sinner, that means from the day I came out of the womb, I was in practice mode, right? Doing a really good job at deceiving myself, deceiving others, and ultimately about my own purposes. And so it's a pretty sad fact that there's a similar concern across the board. And then in James 4, he begins to highlight this idea of desire. Think of it this way. 
Nick. Well, conflict, it really, it, it's not happening all the time. Like in Scripture, there's so many great, powerful, uplifting verses. Uh, yes, but Scripture is about 75% narrative, about 75% story. Some of it is very much like descriptive, like this is what's happening, learn from it. Some of it's very prescriptive, like this is what's happening, use the principles that they used, and then move forward. But just think about it. Adam and Eve, first two people, <laughs> right? They blew it. Um, you, you could go on. Noah got drunk. Abraham offered his wife up to be abducted twice to save his own hide. Um, Jacob was a perpetual liar. David committed adultery and then murder. Solomon was a womanizer. I mean, if the definition of 700 wives doesn't get you womanizer, I don't know what does. <laughs> Like, I have one, and I couldn't imagine having more than one. <laughs> There's enough conflict right there. Saul, eventually Paul, was an abusive bully who persecuted Christians to death. And you could go on. But the, the, the idea is simply this. It, some of you might remember the cartoon Peanuts. Okay, there's like eight people like, yeah, I totally remember that. Dating myself here. But um, Charlie Brown, Peanuts, right? They all have this character. There's this one character who, who didn't appear every episode or in every comic strip, but his name was Pigpen. Do you remember Pigpen? He was always drawn with like these scribbles and scratches all around him, right? And, and, and like little puffs of cloud of like stink coming from him. And so everywhere he went, it was like, oh, there's Pigpen. And people would kind of back away. And um, he comes to this party and Charlie Brown says to him, he's like, hey, you couldn't even clean yourself up for this? And Pigpen looks at him, takes like a piece of food, pops it in his mouth, and he says, what do you want me to be, dishonest? <laughs> like, and, and he just, he owned who he was. And I guess the, the reason I bring that up is simply this. Quarrels, fights, war, these are the words that James are, is using to describe conflict, that the war that's going on in, inside of us. And you might think, well, those seem heavy-handed. But like Pigpen, can we at least say, yeah, conflict comes not because of my wife, not because of my children, not because of my grandchildren, not because of my boss, not because of my coworker. Conflict is present and a reality and a suffering that we all face because of me. Conflict happens because of me. If I can't own the beginning of a conversation that I misspoke, that I was unloving, that I was dishonest, that I was guess what? Not getting anywhere. So if you want to begin to prioritize truth over feelings, conflict is going to do that for you because it's going to make you understand very quickly, huh, I, I can choose right now to feel better about myself in the short term, or I can agree with what God says and I can confess, which is the true definition of confession, by the way. Confession is speaking in agreement with so when I speak in agreement with God that my deceit or that my lust or that my greed was wrong, guess what? That's the beginning of healing. And it's usually a conflict that brings it on. But Pigpen understood his position. He just said, look, what do you want me to be, inconsistent? <laughs> like He knows who he is. So truth to life, then, conflict follows us wherever we go. And it does so because our human heart is in tow. I don't check out my heart and leave it at the door when I go to work. Neither do you. When you parent, you don't leave your heart at work or at home or anywhere else. It's with you where you are. 
you and I's greatest conflict, and this is really where we begin to start to understand the gospel, you and I's greatest conflict is first vertical before it's horizontal. Right? So my husband or my wife or my kids and the argument that we're having, it didn't start there. It started when I came out of the womb in opposition to the very one who provides the salvation that I need. That's the gospel. That's the gospel is, is understanding, putting yourself on the right footing. Like this is the only way. If I expect conflict, then I expect that I brought it on myself. Ephesians 1, 3 through 8 talks about this idea that we are holy, chosen, blameless, adopted, predestined, forgiven, redeemed children of God. All those adjectives are used to describe us in those first few verses in Ephesians 1. And, and you see it even in Ephesians 2, I think 14, it says that he himself is our peace, talking about Jesus, who broke down the dividing wall of hostility. So I'll just say it this way. Conflict is something that is wall building. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you are like, yeah, I know that. Like when someone wrongs me, guess what's the first thing I do? I get out my brick and mortar, and I take a step back, and I just start constructing a wall. That person's not going to get in here, and I put another brick there, and they hurt me again. I'm going to put another brick there. And then all of a sudden, that person is tripping over it, trying to get to me. They're trying to reconcile, and I'm like, hey, did you see that wall there? That means you were a jerk to me, and I learned, and I knew, and I'm going to keep you at distance. I didn't expect conflict, but it came to me, and because you're the problem... You see what I'm saying? This is what happens when we have that hoity, powerful, not humble disposition. He broke down the dividing wall of hostility. He, with his foot of his cross, broke through the wall that you created when you were wounded. That's huge. Second thing we want to look at is conflict is revealing. And if conflict is revealing, that means we have to examine it. Look at verses 2 through 5 with me again. He says this, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that the scripture says he yearns jealously? Don't we struggle with that? Struggle with the very fact that God is called jealous? Let's think of it this way. First, he says that uh, you do not have because you do not ask. Simple. Okay, so I'm going to start asking for bigger and greater things of God. God's like, well, hold on. Pretend a conflict has just happened, and now you're beginning to examine it. Why, why am I av- av- avoiding this person? Or maybe another way to say it, um, why am I dominating this discussion? Why am I not letting this person get a word in edgewise? Why is it that I'm so wounded when this person even speaks? It's beginning to ask the why. It's understanding the fuel that fills up the car with all the nice options. Your emotions are telling you something. What are you going to do with it? Our desire blinds us. When our desire is evil, it blinds us to the ways in which we ignore or fly past God. Have you ever thought about that? When you have an evil desire, you've heard this phrase before, oh, that person was hell-bent on getting what they want. What in the world does that mean? It's not good. (laughs) <laughs> if, if you're hell-bent, that means your desire is hell. Yeah. I'm sorry, but it's, it's true. 
and, and we're like, wow, that person's really wicked. You're like, yeah, me, every time. You want, you want to begin to understand who you are in Christ um, and what he's overcome. You don't have to own this anymore that um, my nature is someone who is hell-bent. You can just say, look, I am heaven-bound with inbent desire on myself. That's hell-bent. And guess what? God, from the day of salvation, begins to redeem that out of me. It's not out of me until I'm in glory with him. And so if that's, if that's the case, if, if it really is not out of me until the day, that means there's always room for repentance and humility. There's always room to examine my emotions before the powerful truth of God's word. We don't stand on top of his word. We hold it above us. That's the And then secondly, he says, you don't have or you don't receive because you ask wrongly. You know, thinking that others are the problem. Have you ever noticed how you pray? Nobody can identify with this, but I, hypothetically, um, <laughs> hypothetically, I would say, um, God, would you just help Jess to see that maybe she could be kinder to me, and uh, right? And that's how we do things. <laughs> and God's just like, guess what? I see your soul. <laughs> okay, scratch that. And now I can be honest. Now I can just say, God, I'm deeply hurt that my wife is not kind, but there must be a reason. Does that make sense? Would you reveal to me the reasons for which she may look at me in the way that she does? That's a bit different, isn't it? That prayer is a tad more humble. Um, The 17th century playwright William Congreve had a famous line in, in a phrase or in a, in a play he wrote called The Morning Bride. You, you perhaps have heard it, the phrase, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned in love. You know, like, what the world? <laughs> Let me just say this, getting back to the idea of the jealousy of God. Um, I need God to be jealous. You need God to be jealous. And here's why. Jealousy is a necessary ingredient of love. The problem is, how do humans exercise jealousy? I like participation, so it's totally fine. How do humans exercise jealousy? We live in a hyper-social media age. If I am a jealous 15-year-old girl, what am I going to do? Say it out loud. I'm going to post something. Or I'm, I'm going to take a picture of myself with my two friends and the third person who I'm upset with, not in it. And I'm going to be like, girls night out. What's that person going to think when they see that? You're like, well, that's wicked. Yeah, <laughs> it is. <laughs> Social media can go straight to where it belongs. But um, <laughs> think of it this way. When he says, Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned in love. He's looking at a flesh definition of the exercise of jealousy. But jealousy is actually a good thing. You see, God is jealous for my heart. One of my favorite songs right now is that song, Jealous for My Heart, um, by Iron Bell Worship. They're awesome. Anyway, new. (laughs) There there will be new singing. Uh, Anyway, when you think about jealousy, think of it this way. Just think of it in, a, in the purest form between a husband and a wife, right? If, if I have an eye for another, 
and my wife is not wounded, and my wife is not hurt, and she's not jealous to get me back, and she's not jealous to win me. What love is that? What love is that? You see, you were created for the very purpose of the worship and magnification of who God is through his son, Jesus Christ. And the moment that you set that on the shelf and you say, I live for self and not for him, guess what? He's jealous for your heart. That's why you have friends and neighbors and coworkers and church family members who are saying, come back to the table. Because he's jealous for your heart. It's not about them and what they think of you. It's about the fact that he's using his family placed around you in order to demonstrate the purity of his jealousy and devotion to you. He's faithful. I'm unfaithful. I mean, quite honestly, you could read the whole book of Hosea, but um, in the book of Hosea, you have a prophet. Now, Ezekiel and, 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 and Hosea, the two Old Testament prophets, probably had, I think, just saying, the hardest jobs, right? Hosea had to marry a prostitute, but, hey, Hosea, your whole life is going to be a metaphor. Like, <laughs> I mean, seriously. And then his prostitute wife would go prostitute herself out like she does, and then he would have to literally physically go back and purchase her, redeem her. And the scriptures say that's a picture of his love for us. Actually, Hosea 6 has one of the best pictures of repentance as a result of that, of God's pursuant, jealous love of us. Ezekiel, I think it's in Ezekiel 24, Ezekiel <laughs> God says, I'm about to take the light of your eyes. He's saying, your wife is actually going to pass away as, as a picture of the nation of Israel. Your wife is going to perish, but I don't want you to cry. And I go, wow, that's weird. That is so backwards. But consider the greatest love that you have for a child, a spouse, a friend, a family member, and then think of it this way. What would I do to get them back? And then you start, and that's just like edge of the cliff start. You start to understand the jealousy of God. God is jealous for you, and it's a good thing. It means he wants your whole heart. So truth to life, then, as we think about conflict being revealing, how are we to examine it? Let me just say this. Oftentimes, stuff can come at us really quick. So I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I jotted down like six-ish, six questions that maybe you could jot down. And I don't want you to go, okay, i got to get all six. What I want you to do is just ask the Lord, is one of these for me? Is one of these something that would be helpful for me when I'm starting to examine conflict? So we've already now traveled this path of saying conflict is normal. I'm expecting it. I'm not surprised when I get in a fight with my spouse. I'm not surprised when I get upset at work. I'm not surprised, you know what I'm saying? So we, we expect it. Now we're on to the stage of examining it. I want to understand it, okay? So here's this. Let's listen in on a few of these. What is it, think about it, as conflict is presently happening, what is it that I want more than anything right now? That's huge. To the parent whose child is just like unruly and running circles around them. What is it that I want? I want respect. I want silence. I want freedom. Like anything, but you, you want something. Every one of us can answer that question. What is it that I want more than anything right now? Question number two, why are, what is so hard to believe or accept about what is currently being said? You're like, well, how does that really play itself out? Have you ever found yourself 
in a situation where somebody is talking and they're providing a critique of your character, of your work, of your conduct, and you just can't seem to let them finish. I know none of us do. I do sometimes. It does happen. It's, it's where you you like on the edge of your seat, but just, I, uh, I got to provide an explanation. If you had an explanation, then you'd know. Like as if it's ever wrong to get that upset with your child. Does that make sense? Third one, why am I feeling so defensive right now? Fourth one, am I displaying love for the other individual? This one's kind of a gut check. Am I prayerless at this moment? Or six, and this one will be like, uh, if you truly believe in God's design of the church for your growth in him, this will be the one that hits home the most. What would those closest to me say are the most challenging things to address with me? If you're married, I challenge tonight when you put your head on the pillow, just turn over to your wife and like, she may turn to you and say, is this a trick question? Like, what? I'm not sure how this is going to go. But while things are in a good space, maybe ask this question. What is the hardest thing for you to bring up with me? And then begin to explore that with the Lord, not with them. Right? The issue, again, we talked about your, your issue first is vertical. All sin is first vertical before it's horizontal. Sin is vertically an offense to God, an abomination to God, and horizontally an effect of that first consequence. How you handle conflict reveals whose glory you seek. Finally, conflict is transforming. We need to embrace it. And so I'm just going to use maybe the example of forgiveness. Most of us uh, probably have some context for that. Most of us have seen or experienced a great forgiveness. But think of it this way. Do you ever struggle with, do I go or do I wait? When there's there's obviously a a tangible lock between you and another individual, do you ever struggle with, do I go or do I wait? Honestly. I do. Here's here's one uh, simple example. Um... Maybe as I'm running out the door, I make a mistake, forget to do something that I had promised my wife I would do. Okay? And in that moment, throughout the course, this is totally hypothetical, and <laughs> not even in the last week. And so throughout the whole course of the day, I'm at work, I'm doing my thing, and, um, and I'm like, oh. if she wouldn't have pressured me, I wouldn't have forgot. I said that in my head, and then, um, and then it was like, I start conniving of like ways to get her to some. You know what I'm saying? Like, it does happen. <laughs> and so, here's the question: Whose move? This is why I love scripture. Scripture doesn't give you an out. In in Matthew chapter five, um, there's this picture of look: if you're going to worship, and you realize that your brother has something against you. Um, you go. But in Matthew 18, he says, 
<clears throat> if you have something against your brother, you go. Either way, it's your move. Think if every Christian really adopted that understanding of pursuing forgiveness. I'm not going to be so petty as to sit back and wait until you do something. I'm actually going to step into it, and I'm going to, I understood conflict is most likely, like it's, it's because of me, so there's something in here, there's some part of the blame to shoulder for me that I can at least examine, and we've examined all that, here's all my motives, and now I'm here at the end, and I'm saying, if I really want to change, if I want to embrace this, it's transforming. You want to embrace conflict. You don't want to run from it. You don't want to be ruled by it. You want to understand that your emotions are telling you something. I am really hurt, or I'm really sad, or I'm really fired up right now. Why? And then you begin to embrace it because God uses those moments to transform you. And so instead of saying, well, I'm going to wait for that person to come to me, or instead of saying, I don't know if I should say anything to that person who's thrown their entire life and career down the drain with their sinful choices. How is that loving? Like, that's not loving at all. But most of us, in the interest of self-preservation, would say nothing. And we go on unloving other people. It's always your move. Even think of the scripture that we just read. It's always your move to receive grace. It's always your move to be humble. It's always your move to submit to God. It's always your move to resist the devil. It's always your move to draw near to God. It's always your move to cleanse your hands. It's always your move to purify your hearts. It's always your move to weep over your sin. Always your move. <clears throat> A couple years ago, there was this great um, sitcom called Everybody Loves Raymond. And in uh, Everybody Loves Raymond, I love Raymond because he is pretty much the classic American male with no backbone. And he, he, he lives in this situation where he would pretty much let his wife do everything for him and then gripe when things don't go well. And so there's this one episode where they had gone on a vacation and they got back and they were carrying everything in and they have uh, a little landing right there before the steps go up to the bedrooms. And, and he sets a suitcase right there. And his wife, as he sets it down, because his hands are full, says, hey, can you grab that? He forgot to grab it, right? Whole day goes by, two days go by. It turns into like this month-long argument. And neither of them, because his hands were full and hers weren't, he thought she should have gotten it. And he was sitting back going, I'm not going to do anything. And she's over here going, that lazy bum. I asked him to get it, and he didn't do it. For weeks, this goes on. And, and it just, it's an explosive piece of, like, seriously, it doesn't, nobody's sacrificing anything. And you might say in this moment, you have no idea, Doug, the wrong that's been done to me. If you knew, it's not just a suitcase, right? If you knew the abuse I experienced, if you knew the ways in which I was belittled and made to be nothing, then you wouldn't be asking me to forgive, and just as kindly, but as pastorally as I possibly could, I would say, it's a good thing I'm not asking. It's the Lord. Right? And so if I have his truth above me, he says what I ought to do and how I ought to encourage and how I ought to love you. If I have the truth below me, your situation dictates to what extent you follow the reality that the scripture calls you to. And so if we make up a Christianity, then that's, not self-sacrificial. That's more about my wants and my needs than it is about my greatest 
hope in all of life. You see, conflict usually creates an environment where forgiveness needs to be sought. One author says it this way, that forgiveness is a voluntary form of suffering. Forgiveness is a voluntary form of suffering. John 10, 18 actually words it in almost the same way where Jesus says that he laid down his life of his own accord. He chose to willingly suffer. So think about it just on this one front. We've, you know, we expect conflict. We've examined conflict. Now we're embracing conflict. So we're looking at this idea of forgiveness and we're saying, forgiveness is really modeled after how Jesus, when we were at enmity with him. Bible says in, in Romans 5.8 that um, God demonstrates his own love for me in this, that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. Romans 3 talks about this idea that I was born a sinner. Romans 6 talks about this idea that the wages for what I've done since I came out of the womb is death. I don't deserve any of this. And yet Jesus comes and forgives me on the cross. He earns my salvation on the cross. And so then you sit back and you go, so that means like every time I forgive someone, it's like a little mini gospel reenactment? Yeah. Think about that, even for the implications of your closest relationships. Let's take the relationship of husband and wife. Every time my wife offends me and I get to forgive her, we have a fuller, more complete, well-rounded, robust picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ that rules our home. It's much different. It's much different. You see, the problem is, are you willing to embrace how the desires of your heart will be revealed through conflict. And you're here this morning saying, yes, I don't know that you are. <laughs> I don't know that I am. This is in part where it comes to us surrendering to God on a daily basis because quite honestly, I don't engage conflict. I would rather run the other direction because I'm afraid of what it may say about me or what it may ask of me. And when I am innately concerned with how I appear or how, um, yeah, just how I appear. When I am innately concerned with how I appear before others, forgiveness is going to be a really challenging thing. Engaging conflict to the point that I can embrace it and say, God, you can change me with this is going to be really difficult because I'm going to be afraid of what I look like. So James, knowing all these things, says this, but he gives more grace. Have you ever been at that point where you're just like, you're running a race and you're just like, oh, I'm so tired, right at the very end, and you just need like one last infusion of strength and of power, and guess what? That's where James says, but he gives more grace. Are you humbly pursuing God? Yes. Does that mean all conflict now is absent from you? No, not a, not a chance. So if that's the case, then what do you beg for every day when you wake up that he promises to deliver every time you ask? In humility, he'll say, here's more grace. He never calls you to a task for which he's not given you the grace to accomplish because his spirit dwells in you. He can't be untrue to himself. That's why he's jealously yearning for you. Why? Because it's not just you. It's the fact that he dwells in you. If he dwells in you by his spirit, then guess what? He wants himself back. Yeah. Yeah. He wants all the glory. 
If all the glory is his, and I'm robbing even a tiny bit of it by how I am acting in a conflict, my emotions are running things, my feelings are sitting on top of the truth, God's like, no, that's not going to work. Right? I'm not about that. I'm about my glory being displayed for all to see so that I am exalted. That's wonderful. That is the best news possible for us. Because if it's about my glory and my purposes being exalted for all to see, guess what? That's horrible. Nobody wants. Like, one dug is enough. We don't need more. So it's always your move because he gives you more grace. How you handle conflict, it reveals whose glory you seek. I love that. How you handle conflict reveals whose glory you seek. As the band comes back up, um, in the back, I'm not sure where, where Chris put those. The, uh, I had a, a little article I wrote called Two Stances. And it looks at whose glory you're seeking. And um, my intention for that was there's a lot that comes at you in a message. And it's easy just to go, ah. Oh. I don't know if I can take that all in. That's okay. That's why I wrote something for you. <laughs> so uh, take that. Take like one of those per household. If you're a husband and a wife, I'd really encourage you, find some time to try to do those together this week. There's some questions and then some scripture references that will drive you back to his word um, and, will, and will challenge you. Um, and I do have to say, like, as I wrap up and the band comes, um, this has been a joy and a privilege. It's um, a very humbling thing to see uh, the time that God has allowed me in ministry to bless others and then watching them providing their gifts to bless his church um, on, a, on a weekly basis to me. They're really, I was actually crying backstage thinking, this is what it's about. This is really what it's about. It's, it's about uh, God getting glory through people who continually say, he matters more than I do. And so let's look at conflict as we, as we understand feelings are underneath truth. Let's look at conflict as one of the best barometers for the pressure that's going on around us, revealing what we need to accept or reject with regard to the truth. So let me pray for us as we wrap up in worship. Father, you're good um, infinitely, ever, always, overwhelmingly good. And so we sit back and we ask your uh, grace and mercy to come over us at this moment. You are powerful. And so I ask that this time of worship here would be um, an offering raised to you, but would also be something that um, warms and cheers our hearts uh, to engage the journey and the battle that we have coming this week. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.